How many of you uh, grew up going to church, going to Sunday school when you were little? I loved going to church, and I, I loved all the folks that worked in my Sunday school class, and they loved on me, and I loved the stories. And uh, when we'd be driving home, we were there every Sunday. Mom played the piano, the organ. She's done that for like 60-some-odd years now in a church somewhere. She played this morning, a little church outside of my hometown. And I would tell my parents the stories as we would drive back home. And uh, I loved everything about church except big church. We would come into big church and we would stand up and we would sing, you know, out of the, the other book that's, that's just as important as this book, the hymnal. And uh, nothing wrong with the hymnal. I, I love the, the old hymns. I still sing them uh, from time to time. And, but but after, after we closed that hymnal and we sat down, the most excruciating part of the church experience for me happened. The sermon. And, and I think that's why God is making me preach the rest of my life, uh, because I, I would go to sleep. And I know some of you do as well. Um, every week you tell me about that. But um, I would wake up at the end of the sermon when he would say, let's stand for closing prayer. It was, I don't know. It's the only thing I would hear. I, I would be snoring. Mom would punch me sometimes. Mom had this great arm, you know, to sleep on. And, and I would, she'd punch me and let's stand for closing prayer. And I'm like, yes. And I would stand up. Now, I remember, um, I don't remember anything the preacher said, but I do remember it was a big deal to bring your Bibles to church. And I remember the first time I ever saw one with red letters in it. Mom busts her Bible open, and, and I'm just kind of looking over there, and she's following. And, and all of a sudden, I see red letters. And I said, what are those? How come, how come those are red and the others aren't? And Mom said, well, those are the words of Jesus. And as a six-year-old kid, I remember thinking... His words must be the most important words because he gets a different color. And I kind of carried that through my whole life, thinking whatever Jesus said was more important than what anybody else said. And then I came to realize older, uh, later in life that these words contain... God, this is God's Word, and it contains not only the best way to live. God tells you how to live and how to relate with others. It tells you the only way to die. And, I, I, and so I've just kind of always, from my adult life on, I've always based my life on what this has to say. And I've carried that idea that Jesus' words are more important than anybody else's words to this day. And I try to pay attention to what He's saying. So what we decided, since Easter is the, the last Sunday of this month, we decided that we were going to focus on some of the last words that Jesus said when he was on the planet, and specifically some of the words that he said when he was hanging on a cross, paying the penalty for your sin and for mine. I thought that would be relevant as we look, as we head towards this Easter season. So let me give you just a little bit of a background on this. If you do have your Bibles, we're going to start in Matthew 27, verse 37. It says, a sign was fastened to the cross above Jesus' head, announcing the charge against him. It read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, this is what got Jesus in trouble. And so the Jews, uh, the, the Romans are actually mocking him. It was traditional that when, if you were crucified, and by the way, most, uh, the vast majority of Romans would never be crucified. It was considered too cruel. You didn't even bring up crucifixion in polite society because it was just too horrible a death to think about. And usually the, the, what would happen is if you were condemned to die on a cross, 
you would be, you would have the charges hung around your neck. You'd carry at least the crossbeam with you out to wherever you're going to be crucified. And they didn't do this in some private place. They did it on the, the most public place they could. It, so it'd be like going to Houston and, and having I-45 right there by downtown packed area, a raised cross so that everybody coming in and out of downtown Houston could see it or going 645 during rush hour around, uh, six, no, it's not 645. 610? What about what's around Dallas? 635, there we go, 10 off. Don't know where that one is. But it'd be like having everybody in the city, coming in and out of the city, seeing this. And, and that's how notorious a crucifixion was. Roman citizens didn't get it, but others did. And so they said, you said this, Jesus. You said yourself, you were king of the Jews. So they're making fun of Jesus with his charge hanging up there on the, the cross. And he's also, they're also making fun of the Jews. You guys are ticked off about it. Jesus said it. We don't care. We're going to kill him. This is the charge against him. Continuing in verse 38. Two robbers were crucified beside Jesus, one on the right and the other on the left. People walked by and insulted Jesus and shook their heads saying, okay, you're going to sense a theme here. Everybody in this passage is mocking Jesus, making fun of Jesus. And I want you to notice the things that they make fun of. First one that says, you said you could destroy the temple and build it again in three days. Now, we know from hindsight, Jesus was talking about his body. He said, destroy this temple. Throughout the New Testament, the body is called the temple, especially if you're a Christ follower. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives within you. You've been bought with a price. So Jesus was talking about his own body. He said, you destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. So that's the first thing. You said you, said you could destroy the temple and build it again in three days. So save yourself. Come down from that cross if you really are the son of God. Everyone there knew that Jesus had claimed to be the son of God. A lot of people nowadays go back and they say, oh, he wasn't claiming that. It is very clear from Scripture. He was claiming to be related to God, to be equal with God. That was the second thing they were mocking him about. Next, the leading priests, the teachers of the law, and the older Jewish leaders were also making fun of Jesus. There's that theme again. They said he saved others, but he can't save himself. So they said, you call yourself Savior. Show us. You can't even save yourself. Next, he says he is the king of Israel. There's the next one. If he's the king, let him come down now from the cross. Then we will believe in him. And then kind of the ultimate, kind of the the basis of their mocking him is right here. He trusts in God. So let God save him now. If God really wants him. He said himself, I am the son of God. And in the same way, the robbers who were being crucified beside Jesus also insulted him. So that the basis of their mocking was, this guy trusts in God. Look at him. Now, can you sense the irony here? The people of God, the chosen people of God, are making fun of the son of God. And before we get too hard on the folks, I want you to think about what was going on that day because if you and I were there, we might have been thinking the same way they did. Because see, the enemies of Jesus were kind of confused about what was going on. But the followers of Jesus were just as confused about what was happening when Jesus was crucified. So let's let's consider this scene. Too many pictures throughout the, the history, throughout history have pictured Jesus this way. Put that slide up there if you would, Mike. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Not a scratch upon him. He's just kind of going to sleep for your sins and for mine. That's not a very realistic picture, is it? Because in the scripture, it tells us that they beat him and abused him so severely that he was probably not recognizable. 
We're told that they stripped him down, beat him with this whip that had, um, that is called the cat of nine tails and it had bones and sharp objects and metal on the end. And when they would wrap, when it would hit him and wrap around him, it would rip flesh so badly, customarily, their internal organs would start showing. When they were filming The Passion of the Christ, Jim Caviezel was Jesus. He accidentally got hit with the cat of nine tails. And I don't even remember how many stitches it took to sew up his body because he accidentally got hit. They beat him 39 times with this. They blindfolded him, punching him in the face, saying, if you're the son of God, tell us who hit you. Prophesy. Come on, dude. They spit upon him. They kicked him. They mocked him. And then he had to carry the crossbeam. And the Bible tells us he wasn't even strong enough. He'd been up all night. Then he'd been beaten, he'd been scourged. He wasn't even strong enough to carry his own crossbeam to the hill. And they had to press a man into service, a man who was coming to sacrifice the Passover lamb. He was, he was coming to sacrifice a lamb for his own sins. He's pressed into service because he meets the real sacrificial lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He meets him. Oh my goodness. So, so before you get real indignant about the people who were making fun of Jesus... It probably, he probably looked more like this. And, and honestly, that may not be brutal enough. My guess is it looked like a grizzly had attacked him and left him for dead. So, if you were standing there, you might be saying the same thing. This guy is the son of God? If you're the son of God, where is he? How can you follow a God that lets that happen to you? That's the idea that the crowd was coming. How can you trust this guy? And this word, this is on your listening guide, this word translated trust is the word pytho. And it means to convince, to rely on with inward certainty, have full confidence or complete trust. Pytho. Now put that picture back up there if you would, Mike. You sure? You trust God? You sure? That, that you want to follow Him now because it's not looking good for you right now. You trust God? And really it brings about the most basic question of life for you. They were asking Jesus this, but I'm asking you today. Do you really trust God? God. Most basic question. From the beginning of creation, every evil force in hell has been trying to undermine the character and the authority and the nature and the goodness of God. Even back in the garden, you remember the serpent came and they immediately began to question the goodness of God. Did God really say not to eat that fruit? Because even if he said it, he didn't mean it. And how can you trust a God like that? And, and you know that doubts don't really happen in the, in, in the light whenever things are going well for you. Doubts don't hit you too hard. When doubts really hit you are when it's dark, right? Have you ever been in, in, a, in a situation where it's so dark that the hair on the back of your neck kind of sticks up? This happened a few times at my house, but when the kids were little, one time Janie and I were, were in bed, we were sound asleep. And we hear this crash. And so I come flailing out of bed. My kids don't wake me up because I flail. Arms, legs, everywhere. Co covers flying. I come out of bed and I immediately run to where I think the disturbance was. And uh, in, in my haste, I forgot my glasses. 
So I get to the front door and I think something is outside, but it's so dark out there that I can't see. And I desperately want to peek to see if something's outside. So I begin to look through the window and I'm, and I'm, Janie's behind me by now and I'm going, I can't see a thing. You see, because it's really bad when you don't remember your corrective lenses. It'd be bad enough in the dark if I could see, but I left my corrective lenses back there and Janie's like, you think your glasses might help? She's always the calm one. I'm ready to shoot something or hit something, even if I don't know what it is. So I go back and I get my glasses and I get my gun and I come back because I'm going to, I'm packing heat. It's underneath the bed. I'm, I pull that out after Janie reminds me and I'm going to, I'm going to tear something up. And so when we finally sneak over there and turn on the outside light, we see what had happened. The, one of the, the beams on the front of our house had, had fallen and hit our front door and it made this crash. But man, in the dark, I knew somebody was out there. Something was out there that needed to be shot. Can you just see me running out the door? Bam, 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 shooting the piece of wood that's laying there. We still have this little indention in our door where it fell. Things were so different in the light. And that's what God is, is trying to get us to realize. That, that things are very, very different in the light. It all makes sense. We may not understand in the darkness, but it makes sense in the light. And here's the thing that I want you to realize this Easter season. Jesus knows what it's like to be in the dark. Now, you may not have realized that, but, but it's straight from Scripture. Matthew 27, picking up in verse 45. At noon, the whole country became dark, and the darkness lasted for three hours. Now, this always, the, the Scripture always goes back to um, things from the Old Testament. And this, is, this goes back to what happened in Egypt. You remember the Passover happened in Egypt, and that's when the, Egypt, when the Israelites got to come out of Egyptian bondage. Three days before the, the, the death angel came down to visit everyone who didn't have the blood on the doorpost, three days of darkness before the death angel came. Here, before the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, three hours before Jesus gives up his life to pay the penalty for your sin and for mine, there is darkness on the land. Jesus had said three things before this darkness, but for three hours, Jesus says nothing on the cross until we get to this point. So let me back up. At noon, the whole country became dark and the darkness lasted for three hours. About three o'clock, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means my God... My God, why have you abandoned me? Now, you've probably heard that forsaken. And I, as I was looking through all these different translations, about half of the translations use forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But about half of them use the word abandoned. And I got to thinking most of us would use abandoned or know what abandoned means more than we know what forsaken. So I, I titled this whole thing abandoned. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And this is really a crazy verse. When you think about it, Martin Luther said this, how can God forsake God? How can God abandon God? Jesus is God. We know that from hindsight. We know that from the scripture. How can God abandon God? Didn't Jesus know what was going on? He was God. Didn't he know what was coming? And there's all kinds of theological questions that that come up when you start studying this passage of scripture. But regardless of your theology... Jesus yells out something that every true seeker has said at some point in their life. God, where are you? You've abandoned me when I need you most. My God, my God. Why have you abandoned me when I need you the most? 
Hi, my name is Lisa, and in July of 2008, my husband and I went in for a routine ultrasound at 20 weeks, and we found out then that our baby didn't have a heartbeat. Hi, my name is Scott. About, it was the early morning I got a phone call, and it was about my grandson being taken to the hospital. He was my little buddy. He was he was a world to me. I have other grandkids, but, but Nova was he was special. Uh, my name is Deidre, and um, my father sexually abused me until I was eight years old. Um, and he also beat the living daylight out of my mother. And when we got there, and they had just had just gotten him resuscitated, they admitted him into the, his room and. It was at that point that I was like, God, why? Why? He's not even three years old. Why would you take this precious boy? It made me feel betrayed by God. It made me feel dirty. It made me feel like God left me um, out there by myself. Um, and I asked why. Um, I couldn't understand why God would allow something like that to happen to me. It was about a week when, when he finally away. So that was the hardest thing that we ever had to go through and it was the hardest point in my life and I questioned and questioned and questioned why, why was this baby taken from us when I never got to hold him or kiss his face. You ever ask God why? Anybody? Been through some tough times? I've seen quite a bit in, in my years in ministry, and there's many times people ask me why, and I just I, I say, I, I don't know. I don't have an answer for you. I can't pull out a verse and tell you what's going on. But God, God knows. And, and that answer although it may not be what you want to hear, comes straight out of Scripture. Look at 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Paul is talking to the Corinthian church and he says, We can see and understand only a little about God now, as if we were peering at His reflection in a poor mirror. But someday... Dude, I get, I get carried away thinking about that someday. But someday, we're going to see Him in His completeness face to face. Now all that I know is hazy and blurred, but then I will see everything clearly, just as clearly as God sees into my heart right now. Paul is telling the Corinthians, sometimes our minds cannot comprehend what God is doing. And uh, we only see a small part, and, and God has the big picture. It's kind of like this. I'm going to put some words, uh, some letters up on the scripture and I want you uh, up on the scripture, up on the screen. And I want you to tell me the first thing you see. Put it up there. What do you see? How many of you see the word nowhere? How many of you see the word now here? See, a lot of people look at their circumstances and they say, God is nowhere. He is nowhere to be found I don't know anything about God, where He is right now. But others, you've walked with Christ a little bit longer and you say, no, 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 no. 
God is now here. I don't understand it. I don't even see him. But he's promised that he would always be here. God is now here. When Caleb was six, we were going to go. I was going to take him deer hunting for the first time. And uh, so a friend of mine said, he can shoot my gun. It's a great first gun. And so I didn't know anything about it. I was like, okay, let's take him out and let's, let's go practice shooting. So we go out this guy's land. And, uh, and so I take Caleb out there and we have this thing set up at 100 yards away. And I want him to practice shooting. He's all excited about it. The gun was a little bit too big for him. It wasn't a youth model. So I was holding the butt of the gun up against my leg. And I wasn't paying attention to what Caleb was doing. Caleb and I learned some very valuable lessons that day, didn't we, bud? Um, one of the most valuable lessons is when shooting a 30-30, make sure that you're further than this from the scope. Because I wasn't paying attention. One shot, dude never fired again for four years because the scope pops up and hits him in the head. And he's six years old. He's out there and he's hollering. And to this day, he has this little crescent moon-shaped scar on his forehead. They promised him it wouldn't scar. They lied. Um, we should get our money back. So he has this little scar. Well, immediately, if you've ever seen head wounds, blood starts pumping out and it swells up. I mean, there's skin there. There's the dude. It's I'm going, oh, I'm trying not to freak out. And Caleb is freaking out because blood's pouring down his face. And so I rush him to the hospital and, and we go to ER and, and the, the friend's wife went and found Janie at, at uh, Walmart. And it's kind of funny because she's walking up and down trying to find Janie. And, and she was very good. And she's like, oh, hey, what are you doing here? And, and she said, I'm here to finish your shopping. She's like, why? And she said, um, you're needed. Where, where am I needed? At the emergency room. <gasps> it's okay. Everyone's okay. But it'd be good if you went there. Give me your list. So she finishes shopping and, and Janie comes up. Well, when, uh, when they come in to finally do the stitches, it took six stitches to, to, to close his head. Well, if you've ever had lidocaine, lidocaine is not your friend until it, it's already been injected in there. Well, he starts injecting it in. Well, I'm having to help hold my six-year-old son down. And then, I don't know what the dude did, whether he just missed or... By the time the last two stitches, all the pain medication had worn off. So the last two stitches are going in my six-year-old son's head. I'm holding him down, and he's looking at me with these big blue eyes, and tears are coming down. And a six-year-old mind was not capable of understanding that what the doctor and his daddy were doing was for his own good. But can I tell you that your mind is sometimes incapable of understanding what God is doing in your life, no matter how old you are, no matter how long you've walked with God. There are times you are not going to understand what God is doing. And this, again, comes straight from Scripture. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God is speaking. He says, I don't think the way you think. The way you work isn't the way I work, says the Lord. For as the sky soars high above the earth, is the sky a little bit higher above the earth? Did you see that Southwest Airlines flight that part of the fuselage ripped off at 34,000 feet? That's a long ways. <laughs> They're six miles up in the air. And they had to come back down to 11,000 feet so that people could breathe and the people who passed out could, you know, be revived. It's a big deal. But they're five or six miles above the earth and, and we're not even to the sky yet. God says, as the sky soars 
high above the earth. So the way I work surpasses the way you work and the way I think is beyond the way you think. Some things we cannot comprehend this side of heaven. And that's what the Bible says. Well, thanks a lot, Doug. Well, even though that's true, we can't always see what God sees. We can't think the way God see, uh, thinks and we can't see everything. God has given us some specific instructions for those dark times when we can't see anything and we wonder if he's really there. So the next time, if you're not in the middle of darkness, you will be. The next time you face darkness, here's what God wants you to do. Number one, he wants you to remember some things. The first is God is good. Jesus is speaking and he says in Mark 10, 18, no one is good except God alone. This is real important because we tend to um, project our present situation on God, right? If my life is bad, God, you must not be a very nice God because how can you dare let me have a bad day? Or a bad week. Or God forbid, a bad month or year. How can you do that, God? We don't understand. God, why have you left me in this place? I don't get it. Where are you? We think God isn't good because He's allowing some stuff in our life that isn't good. But God, the Bible says, transcends our circumstances. That's what we hold on to. In the middle of cancer, God is good. In the middle of abuse, in hurt so deep that we can't explain it, in adultery, in death, in grieving loss, God is good. Even though we may be impacted by the hurt for years and years and years, God is good. In war, God is good and His goodness will never change. First thing in the darkness, you remember God is good. Second thing, God is for me. This is really a crazy statement. Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can ever be against us? I want you to think about how ridiculous our worry and, and our... Uh, wringing our hands and, and all of our concern, uh, care and concern are when you think about the one who the Bible calls the Alpha and the Omega. The one who is so powerful that he said, let there be light and light was created. The one who said, let there be an earth and it was created. The one who said, let the waters teem with all kinds of fish and it was created. The one who's so powerful that he said, let birds fly through the air and let there be all kinds of animals on the ground and let there be this kind of animal and this kind of animal. He's so powerful that when he speaks, things happen. And the Bible says he's for you. The beginning and the end, the one that we'll be worshiping forever and ever is for you. If that is true, what can ever phase you as a follower of Christ? I heard somebody say years ago that, that when non-Christians go through suffering and pain, God also lets Christians go through suffering and pain so that somebody can see a difference. Does that make sense? God is for you. One of my favorite uh, songs is by Building 429, and it says, I won't question in the dark what is true out in the light. What's true in the light is God is always good, and God is always for you. Decide that now before you go through dark times. And there's a third thing. God is with me. Hebrews 13, 5. I will never fail you. I will never, what? Abandon you. No matter how you feel, no matter how betrayed you've been, God says He would never leave you. So you look at God and you say, God, you said you're always good. 
You said you're with me. You said you're for me. God, you said it, so I'm going to hold on to it. I don't understand it. I'm trusting you, God. I don't, I don't like it. And God says, when you get to that point, when you say, God, I trust you. Isn't it awesome when your child says, I trust you. And when you finally say, God, I'm going to trust you no matter what, God goes, now I've got you right where I want you. In fact, that's what that song says, Building 429. It says, you got me right where you want me. And then at the end, he comes around and he says, and it's right where I want to be. No matter how much pain, no matter how much suffering, I want to be where you want me, God. So here I am. And God says, yes, I've got you. Now, I want to go back to that theological question because Hebrews 13.5 says, I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. Didn't, didn't Jesus... Uh, is there a contradiction to Scripture here? Because Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? I know Hebrews wasn't written yet because Jesus hadn't died on the cross, but whoa, Scripture's contradicting. Well... What we always do when we see something in Scripture that we don't understand, we go to Scripture. It's amazing how if you have a theological question, most of the time it's answered with another Scripture. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. Christ had no sin, but God made him become what? The one who was sinless actually became sin so that in Christ we could become right with God. Why did God abandon Jesus? So that they didn't have to abandon you. The irony of them telling Jesus to come off the cross and save himself was he could have done it, but if he'd come off the cross and saved himself, he couldn't have saved you. God is so righteous that he can't look upon sin. And at that moment, at the end of those three hours, all sin came upon Jesus. Rape and incest and murder and war and any kind of evil that you can think of came upon the sinless son of God. He became sin. God turned his face from him. God abandoned him so that he would never have to abandon you. That's what you hold on to in the dark. When everyone around the cross didn't understand, God made him sin so that guilty sinners would have the option to be made right with God. So when life becomes dark, never forget what you've learned in the light. God is good. God is always for you. God is always with you. I grew older and um, in 2004 I was able to go on a mission trip to Honduras. And... Um, in, some, in my prayer time in Honduras, I, was, I prayed and was still asking God why. Um, and I felt like God revealed to me that he allowed that to happen. So um, a passion could be birthed inside of me for students, for youth, for young people. We struggled with the why and um, questioned. And God showed us throughout the whole process that he was with us and that he he was holding our Isaiah when we couldn't. But it was during the time when we knew that he was going to leave us, that he was going to, to go be with our Father in heaven, that we knew God was in this. We, we, we knew it was. But it was, it was difficult to get to that place. We, we really wanted him to be healed. But we, had, we began the process of accepting that God was God and God is good. I would never choose to have my father abuse me. But uh, by God allowing that to happen, 
um, I'm able, as a survivor, I'm able to tell my students that they too can forgive. They too can survive. They too can be healed um, and live with our true father. Because of that, man, I can experience the love of my true father, my heavenly father, a love that is pure and unconditional. After trying for a year and a half after losing Isaiah, um, we found out this past Christmas that um, I'm pregnant and um, I have a peace about this pregnancy and that's something that I feel that God has shown me and um, put on my heart and he's been faithful and he's good. God is good. And God comforts you in your dark times so that you might comfort others in their dark times. That's what they were telling you. That's what they were sharing. And, and what I've learned, the older I've gotten and the longer I've walked with God, and, and I don't have it all together by any stretch of the imagination, but what I've, I, I realized that the closer I am to God, the less I ask why. The closer I am to God, the more I ask what. God, what do you want me to learn? God, what are you doing? What is the lesson here? And, and it's not always an easy lesson, but God promises that he will redeem the years that the locusts have eaten. That, that's talking about crops, but he's talking about if you have messed up your life with some choices or someone else has messed up your life with their choices, God says, if you will trust him, he'll redeem all of that stuff. And you'll be amazed that God will allow you the worst hurt, the biggest embarrassment that you have. God will make that a contact point where so that you can reach someone else who is going through the same thing that you're going through right now. It doesn't make it any easier right now, but at least you know that God is so big and so powerful that whatever your biggest mess up was or someone's mess up against you, God can use that to bring more people into the kingdom of God. That's amazing to me. If you're in a difficult place right now and, and you just say, dude, I'm, I'm sucking wind right now and I need prayer right now. Would you raise your hands? Let's pray. God, I don't even know everybody who said that. Who I can't see their faces, so I don't know everybody who raised their hands, but you are bigger than I and you are all-knowing, and you know exactly what's going on. And I thank you for the courage of these people to be willing to say, I am hurting and I don't know if I can make it. God, where are you? God, what are you doing? And somehow, with each of these people, God, I pray that you bring someone alongside them to help bear the burden because life is too difficult right now. And I thank you that no matter what they're going through, Lord, we can look back at the cross, which is your exclamation point 2,000 years ago, that you love us, that you're good, that you're always with us, you're always for us, no matter what we face. And I pray that each of these people would come to understand that right now and in the days ahead so that someday they can stand up and tell someone, when it was darkest, God met me and God sustained me. I pray this in your name. Amen. Now, some of you here, you feel guilty about all the junk that's in your life and you really wonder if God can really love you. You're like, man, I, I've done too much. And let me just remind you that, that God abandoned Jesus for your sins so that He didn't have to abandon you. And some of you have never um, 
released your life to Christ. Some of you have done it and you've taken it back and you need to release your life to Christ today. Some of you need to say, I'm tired of doing things my way. It's time to do things God's way. And so if you're willing before God and these witnesses to say, I surrender to Christ right now. The best I know of me, I give everything I know of me to everything I know of God. I want to see your hands. If you're willing to do that. Let's pray for these folks. Father, I just pray that um, we don't even know what tomorrow holds, but you do. And so surrendering to you, we don't even know what that means, but we trust in you. Because you said the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is available for those who follow you. So there are some marriages that need to be resurrected today. There are some, um, some lives that have, have been given to drugs and alcohol that need to be resurrected today because they just feel like they're dead and they're powerless in their sin. There are lives that have been given in, in poor choices There are marriages that are falling apart, God, that need to be resurrected today. And so we just ask you to do an Easter in their lives today and in the months ahead so that someday they can stand before you and others and say, there was a time when it was so dark that I couldn't see and I couldn't breathe and God met me there. We want to give you the glory in advance for that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you take your registration cards and fill those out for me just a moment? And uh, we always ask you to write something on the back, and there's three main points from today. And so which one did you need to hear today? Which one do you need to apply to your life today and over the next seven days? God is good. God is for me. God is with me. Which one of those things? Write those down on the back of your card. If you have any prayer concerns, write that there as well.